from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Joy Braun. Joy grew up, on and off, the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation. She was raised as a Baha'i and used her religious background to spread the teachings of unity and diversity among the Sioux people. She provides an interesting historical perspective on Native American history. To this day, she works to preserve the native Lakota ceremonies. I started the interview by asking Joy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up on and off the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation. Um, My parents were uh, going to school at University of South Dakota down in Vermilion. And when my dad got his Ph.D., we moved to Missoula, Montana. I stayed there until I was about 15 And then I moved back to Eagle Butte, which is, again, on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation. And from here, I uh, went to school for a couple years, and I was a foreign exchange student to Japan. And then I came back, and I got my GED, and then I went to college when I was 17. So what was life like on the reservation? For a long time, we're known as the second poorest reservation in our second poorest county in the country. Right now, um, one of the counties here is known as the poorest county in the country. So it can be really hard, especially when there's not a lot of jobs. There's about 80% unemployment right now on this reservation. Uh, So yeah, it can be hard securing food, making sure there's heat for winter, making sure there's um, electricity, water, all those things can also be really good, too, because you're with your culture and you're um, with uh, family, which is in relationships with other people, just because that, that's really strong, what we call teoshpai, or extended family. So you always have somebody around to help you. So you grew up in, with the traditional ways? Yeah, I did. I grew up um, very traditional I didn't grow up learning anything about churches very much. I didn't grow up with a lot of different things. I mean, we we always lived in houses. Cause some people believe that, well, if you're on the Sioux Reservation, you live in teepees, and that's not true. But we, we live in houses. We have running water. We have electricity, those types of things. We have TV, radio, those types of things. I grew up in our culture, so I grew up uh, going to powwows and going to sundances and those types of things, yeah. And why was it that you went to Japan? I went to Japan because the Lakota people are warrior society. And Japan was one of the countries that we were at war with in World War II. And there's a lot of my relatives that were in World War II. How I explained it to my uncles was that I wanted to go to one of the countries that we had um, been at war with because Japan had also turned itself around from being war-torn to um, 
being really economically savvy. And I wanted to learn what they did so that I could try to bring some of that back to our reservation. And what were some of the lessons you learned that you brought back? There's a lot of power in unity. That If you have a, a vision that can be shared nationally, that that power, that vision can be really strong. And that's what turned Japan around. You can start to see some of those changes made here on the reservation now, especially with the sobriety movement. What did you do when you came back from Japan? I started working with a service project here, and I also continued my teaching with the Baha'i faith, trying to tell other people about the Baha'i faith, about unity and diversity. One of the things that being Lakota or being Sioux is spirituality is really strong with our people. I learned a long time ago that being a Baha'i was uniting like all the religions. I learned that I didn't have to give up my traditional ways. I didn't have to turn away from going to sweat or going to sun dance or giving up those ceremonies and I could still be a Baha'i, and that the message of unity was really strong. And again, that was one of the things that I had learned in Japan, is that vision of um, unity, that, that power of having a vision was really strong, and that's what helped bring them, about, bring them back. But one of the things that they were lacking in Japan was they became really materialistic. They didn't have that spirituality, or at least it wasn't that strong anymore. With the Lakota, that's always been really a central theme for us, is that sense of spirituality. So I worked really hard with on teaching the Baha'i faith among my people. So, Joy, how was it that you became a Baha'i? What's your story? My mom's a Baha'i. She declared when I was about eight years old, and my aunt Jacqueline left Bull had become a Baha'i, I think a few years before my mom declared. And she told my mom about the Baha'i faith. But I didn't just, like, automatically declare, because one of the things about um, the Baha'i faith is uh, independent investigation of the truth. My mom told me, you know, you have to decide what you, for yourself whatever you want to believe. And if you don't want to believe in anything, that's okay, too. So when I was about 12, 13, 14 years old, I started going to different churches because I was really curious. Somebody had invited me to a Mormon church. I went to a Baptist church. I went to, you know, different churches because I had never learned about Christianity. I didn't really understand why there were all these different churches and yet everybody believed in Christ. It just didn't make any sense to me. So I started reading a lot, and I started... in. Um, really going through things like the Bible. And there was this book called uh, Thief in the Night by William Sears, and I read that book, and every single proof in that book that he put forth, I looked it up in the Bible. And then one day when I was uh, 15, we were going to the Flathead Reservation, because I was living in Montana at the time, and my mom and I were going up there. We were on our way back to Missoula, and 
I had this vision, or, or it wasn't really a vision because I didn't really hear, see anything, but I heard something. I heard something tell me, it is time, and the, it said, it is time, it is time, it is time. It was four times that this said that, and the whole world went black around me. I told my mom, I said, there's something saying that it's time, and right at that moment, the person who was driving was driving really fast, was going like 75 miles an hour on this little two-lane road, and it was weaving back and forth, and, you know, it was one of those really curvy mountain roads, and we were driving on that, and I said, you have to slow down, you have to slow down, you have to slow down right now, and my mom told the driver, you know, you better slow down, because she knows these things, and just as he slowed down, there was this big semi-truck that was swerved into our lane, and if he hadn't slowed down, we would have had a a head-on collision. About two weeks later, I was down in this uh, little, we had just moved back to South Dakota. I was down on the Pine Ridge Reservation in this little community called Wambali. My mom had been invited down there by my Aunt Jacqueline to go to this Baha'i project down there called Amos Gibson Teaching Project. I didn't know what was going on down there. I didn't know anything what was going on. But my mom asked me to drive, so I helped her drive down there, and uh, we were sitting around. They had the feast, which is a spiritual feast that the Baha'is have. Um, every 19 days they have something called a feast, and there was this feast going on. There was the prayers and things going on. So I was sitting in that feast, sitting there listening to the prayers and everything. Then the whole world went black again. And that voice came back. It said, it is time, it is time, it is time. It came again, said that four times. And then, you know, everything came back around me. So I turned to my Aunt Jacqueline and I said, I have to declare, I have to become a Baha'i. So you said that you came back from Japan with the lessons that you learned and Mm -hmm. then got involved, you said, in service projects to assist in your community? Yeah. Can you yeah. can you talk about those? One of the things that, that we did a lot of was children's classes and teaching values. What happened is there was uh, again like a like a teaching project to you know go tell people about the Baha'i faith and try to bring different things, different service what we could do service wise for our community. That particular project was called the Spirit of the Rose. That came about because that particular year, the Baha'i friends in Iran had sent roses to the National Convention, which is where these Baha'is get together and they they decide um, who's going to be on the National Spiritual Assembly. There's nine people elected to the National Spiritual Assembly. Anyway, so the friends from Iran had sent these these roses, and my friend and I, Brenda Eagle Chasing, were sitting in my house, and we didn't know this was going on when this was happening. We were talking about, well, what can we do for our people? What can we do to help bring the Baha'i faith? What service can we do? As we were talking about this, this huge gust of wind came through the house that that I was living in, and it was just, it just smelled of roses. It was really just heavy smell of roses. You have to understand, there's no flowers where I live. There's nothing. There's just dust. (laughs) (laughs) 
we were like, oh, okay, so that's going to be the name of this. This was the first project by an all-Native American local spiritual assembly or all-Native American group that, that leads our, our community for our own people, the very first one in the nation. So some things that we decided to do, because at the time there was like a lot of trash around the reservation. So when people came to help with this project, one of the things we did is we went and we picked up trash, which was a big help, because like I said, there was a lot of trash around. We also went and helped at Sundance, down at Greengrass, which is where Arville Looking Horse, or the Looking Horse family, keeps the pipe white buffalo calf pipe that was given to us by a messenger of God, our messenger of God, for our people thousands of years ago. She, she, and again, this is the only woman I've ever heard of that's a messenger. She brought us a pipe and teachings. Anyway, that pipe is kept down there. So we took people down there and we helped, and they cut wood and helped cut meat and helped serve people. So we did things like that, too. And then we taught children's classes. We taught value classes for children, things like generosity, being kind, and whatnot for the kids in the different communities. So those are some of the things that we did. And this is when you were in South Dakota? Yes, this is when I was in South Dakota, when mm-hmm. I was 17. And then what did you do after that? Then I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the University of Minnesota, Morris. When I was 17, and then when I was 18, I moved to Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. By 21, I was back to South Dakota. After I went back to South Dakota, I really got involved with learning more about arts and crafts, learning to, to bead and, and that sort of stuff. But I did a lot of bead work and things. And then I went to college again, because I was trying to finish college, and I took a class in, uh, I thought I was going to end up being a social worker, but I took this, this class in um, journalism, it's like journalism 101, because I always wanted to be a reporter, and I met um, Denny McAuliffe, who is an associate editor for the Washington Post, he came out, he's an Osage native, from the Osage tribe. And he told us a little bit about journalism and things. And I ended up going to University of South Dakota to the American Indian Journalism Institute for a month, which is that the American Indian Journalism Institute is funded uh, by Al Newhart, who started USA Today and the Freedom Forum. And came back and worked on the Sitanka Vision, which is, which at that time was a newspaper, one of the only newspapers at a, at a tribal college, and ended up becoming the editor for that newspaper and eventually became the public relations officer for Sitanka University, taking the newspaper, making it a, a tribal newspaper. Can you tell me what the name of the newspaper was? It was the Sitanka Vision. Sitanka was uh, is the name for is Bigfoot. C is foot, and Tonka is big. And it was named after Chief Sitanka, who was the chief that was killed at Wounded Knee, the 
Wounded Knee Massacre, which is was the very last so-called battle, but it was by the remnants of the 7th Cavalry. The 7th Cavalry was the one that was run by Custer, and our people had killed Custer at the Custer Battlefield, what we call the Battle of the Greasy Grass, but the Americans call it um, battle, Custer's Battlefield. But Sitanka was the chief that ran from uh, Sitting Bull's camp up on the Standing Rocks Reservation when Sitting Bull got killed. And then Sitanka took his band of um, people and traveled in winter in blizzard down to Wounded Knee. And when they got to Wounded Knee, the remnants of the 7th Cavalry were there and they asked them to disarm, and they were taking everything away from them. They took rifles, what little rifles there was left. They said there was less than ten. They took knives. They took anything away from them, and then they ended up killing, uh, having a massacre there. Our college was named after him. So the name of the newspaper was the Sitanka Vision. And you said this newspaper transitioned from a college newspaper to a uh, public distribution within the within the reservation. Yeah, it became the official newspaper of the tribe. And my condition for making it the tribal newspaper was freedom of information and freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And one of the things that people should understand is is a lot of the freedoms like free speech, free press, those types of things are not always guaranteed on the reservation. We do have the American Indian Civil Rights Act from 1963, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's implemented on every reservation. And certainly free press wasn't necessarily implemented on this reservation. Um, the first reservation to really pass and, and implement free press was down in Oklahoma, the Cherokee Reservation. But my condition for making it in the official newspaper of the tribe at that time was that there be free free press. And what were the blocks to a free press prior to that? The tribe could shut you down if they didn't like what you were printing. There was, at that point, the Eagle Butte newspaper, which is a newspaper here that's run by non-Native Americans, and they print local information, you know, news from the school, happy birthday notices, you know, things like that. But any real news, any hard-hitting news, any investigative news just is not done in that newspaper or in most newspapers on the reservation. But for me, it was essential that free press was implemented. So I went to the college's board and I said, if I'm going to do this, I want your backing. I want your backing for free press. Some of the people on the college board at that time were tribal councilmen and they agreed to it. So when I did do the harder hitting news, they couldn't say that they didn't back free press then the council couldn't shut us down. Did you still get resistance? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've had everything from being shot at 
to having people stop me in the street, cussing me out. There were bomb threats. Yeah, I've had all kinds of things happen to me. Mm. <laughs> but that didn't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> I don't think so many people know about this American Indian civil rights legislation. Can you give us some background on that? The true start of the reservation era was when the Wounded Knee Massacre happened. We were already being put on reservations at the time, but when that happened, it was like, okay, there's, there's just no point. We can't resist anymore. We can't run anymore. We weren't American citizens until 1924. American Indians did serve in World War I, but we weren't American citizens. In fact, American Indians have served in every single war and conflict that the United States has ever been in. But previous to 1924, we weren't American citizens. When we became American citizens in 1924, and we were on reservations, there was this thing called the IRA, former government, that the United States government wanted us to implement on the reservations. And the IRA, former government, basically meant that we had to hold elections by ballot. We had to form constitutions that were approved by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We still have agents on every known and federally recognized reservation. So we have a superintendent, BIA superintendent, Indian Affairs superintendent. Everything that tribes do is monitored by the federal government. We yeah. all have a number with the certified Indian blood, and everything we do is monitored by the federal government, at least as far as our, our, our own governments are concerned. In those constitutions by the IRA form of government that the United States wanted us to have, freedoms weren't necessarily guaranteed. Certain freedoms were necessarily guaranteed. When the civil rights movement started happening, our people started wanting to make sure that our own rights were also guaranteed too. Because, like I said, we, were ha- we weren't citizens until 1924, There was a lot of different things that could happen on reservations. People could go missing and not necessarily have the government investigate it. So there was different things that were going on like that. People could be harassed by government officials, and our rights weren't necessarily guaranteed. So different senators got together with the Indian or with the Indian tribes and they put forth the American Indian Civil Liberties Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty three and then that was passed in nineteen sixty three with certain rights guaranteed. In there is is free speech, freedom of the press, freedom of the, of the right to assemble, all those types of things that people take for granted as as American citizens weren't necessarily guaranteed to us, at least on a federal level. Because, like I said, everything that federally recognized tribes, everything we do is monitored. But when that came about, at least on a federal level, those rights were guaranteed. Now, did it necessarily filter down onto to the grassroots level? Not necessarily. And that's where you have the, the, the things like 
people fighting for fishing rights in the Northwest happened in the 1970s. You have the 1970s Wounded Knee. You have the American Indian Movement, which came about in the 1970s. Those types of things, because we had been guaranteed those rights, but they didn't necessarily get filtered down to the grassroots level until, in fact, very recently. In fact, even our right to practice our Native religion was, was only guaranteed in 1978. And I remember as a little girl going to Sundance, which is uh, a ceremony by the Lakota people and other tribes, and having the FBI taking down um, license plate numbers because we could be harassed by the FBI if we practiced our, our religion before 1978. And then, in, and then after 1978, the federal government again tried to stop us from practicing our religion. So it wasn't until, I think it was like 1983, 84, that we finally won the, the United States Supreme Court ruling, saying that, yes, we can, in fact, practice our ceremonies. Joy, how long were you the editor of the paper? As the editor of the paper for four years. What caused you to uh, leave that position? The Setanka College was going bankrupt. We had purchased the Huron College in Huron, South Dakota, which is off of the reservation. We've gotten accreditation for the college. All the way it's an accreditation program. We went through that accreditation process after we had purchased Huron University. The university ended up going bankrupt. For years, colleges would come onto the reservation and say, hey, we'll give you credit. You can use our accreditation process. Uh, you can use our accreditation to offer classes here with like some of the tribal colleges. Uh, use our accreditation. But let us, let us count your Indian students so we can get monies from the federal government. And when we tried to do that, the federal government stopped our funding. And so we went bankrupt. Why did the federal government stop it? It's racism, pure and simple. What year was this? This was in 2004. And what was the so-called reason for blocking it? They said that there wasn't enough Indian students in Huron and we couldn't use our Indian student population on the Eagle Butte campus when other colleges such as Northwest College in Aberdeen did the same thing and when it was getting winter and I had to make sure that there was heat for me and my family I couldn't go without without an income. And I had met my husband, or my soon-to-be husband at that time, and I was planning on going out to Washington anyway, and he came out to meet my family and get permission from the matriarch of my family, my grandma, I only, for permission to marry me, and permission from my parents and, and whatnot to marry me both traditionally, that's the correct thing to do. Also, as a Baha'i faith, you have to get permission from your parents to get married for 
family unity, mm-hmm. but also traditionally, that from a Native perspective, it's traditional to do that. So he wanted to come out and get permission. So he moved us out there and to make sure that we were all taken care of. And then what did you do when you got out there? My husband and I started uh, Braun Lawn, which was a lawn maintenance company in Tacoma, Washington. And we did that for a while until my husband got hurt. Then I ended up going back to work for a call center. And then I got a job in Bothell, Washington with AT&T, and I ended up going up there. And that's where you are right now? No, I'm in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. I got really sick. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have diabetes. Um, I had a stroke. And when I got really sick, my husband and I decided after my work disability ran out, we decided to come back to the reservation. And so that's what we did. And so my husband's working right now, but I'm not. I can't talk for eight hours on the phones anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Right. right. I really enjoyed my job. I know that for some people, you know, as I worked in customer service, and some people think, oh, my gosh, you worked in customer service. That must have been so hard. Actually, it wasn't. There was just a couple customers that were a little difficult. But most of the time, I was able to help people. I really enjoyed it because I loved visiting with people from all over the country and that part of it was really fun, and being able to help people was really fun. But I can't talk on the phone for eight hours. I can't type as fast as, as, as is needed for customer service. I can't sit up for eight hours anymore. It's just too difficult. I, I tried working with the, the wheelchair. I tried doing everything, and it was just, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I kept trying to go back, and I just couldn't do it. I think sometimes God has plans for you, and as much as you try to avoid those, you end up exactly where you're (laughs) supposed to be. (laughs) I get to go to ceremonies, and I get to go to powwows, and I get to be re-immersed in my culture, which, which for me is very spiritual healing. And I'm disabled right now. So my body doesn't work all the time, and I get sick really easy from the medicines I'm on. But I have to still fill that up another way so I can do that spiritually. I can do that with culturally. I can do that with relationships with other people. I can do, you know, with friendships and family. And that can carry you even when you're incapacitated or can't do as much as you want to physically. But I can still be wheeled out to, like, Sundance. Tomorrow I'm going to Sundance. And we're taking the, the, the wheelchair with me, and we're taking all of our camping gear. And my daughter, who's 16, she's going to come and help me. And I can still sit out there, and I can still support those that are going to go through the Sundance. I'm doing the things that I can do. And in the winter, I can get ready for things like giveaways, and I can get ready things like the ceremonies. I can fix the camping gear. You know, it may take me a little while, but I can still do it. Yeah, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm doing, I'm doing good. 
doing good that way. Joy, have you seen progress in the Indian people's lives in the past, I guess it would be 30 years? Yeah, and, I have. And in what way? A while ago, I was, I was driving around in the car, and, and there's this radio station called KLND, and it's run by the, um, it, it's run on the Standing Rock Reservation, which is just north of us. There was a powwow on the radio, and there was an announcer on the powwow. And he said, 30 years ago, it was, in order for us to be okay to be Indian, we had to drink. And then we came to powwow drinking, meaning alcohol. And now we don't have to drink. We can just come to the powwow and enjoy ourselves. There's been a big movement towards sobriety. When people were put on the reservations, the roles for people changed. The Lakota people, traditionally, very long time ago, were very equal in our roles for, for men and women. That equality was really strong with the Lakota people for men and women. A lot of people think that the Lakota people or the Sioux people were patriarchal, but we weren't. We were matriarchal, and we're still matriarchal. We're still a matriarchal society. But the roles changed, and so the men didn't have things for them to do. Uh, They wanted to make us farmers, and the land out here is not conducive to farming necessarily. So people changed to be ranchers, but the only way you could be a rancher was if you were a cowboy. Well, Indians versus cowboys, that doesn't work out too good. (laughs) And women went to work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, so they went to work for the tribe, but there wasn't a whole lot of other work out there, you know, to bring in money and whatnot, which was needed. So a lot of things changed, and people were taken away, children were taken away to boarding school. And there was a lot of abuse done in boarding schools, a lot of abuse done. After we were put on the reservations and after we were made citizens, we were still taken away from and put into boarding schools. So people didn't learn how to be a family. They didn't learn those skills to be a family. They didn't learn that you don't hit somebody for discipline. They didn't learn learn how to be a family. They didn't learn how to live together properly. And then those things were brought back to the reservation when people, you know, got out of school and whatnot. And so they didn't know how to how to react and what was given to them in order to cope was alcohol. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of drinking, and in the last thirty years or so, the sobriety movement has been really strong. What people say, walking on the red road, uh, walking that straight path, uh, that sobriety movement has been moving forward a lot stronger. My husband and I came back from camping last night, and. We were we were talking about the family that came down for the day, uh, husband and wife, and they had all their children out there. And it was so good to just see a family out having fun with no alcohol, with people just having fun and teasing each other and, and that sort of thing. And that was really good to see. You wouldn't have seen that even 15, 20 years ago. But there's a lot more of that. There's some more jobs than there were. There's a new hospital going in 
that should be open in a couple months. Um, for a long time, we had to deal with this broken down hospital that we're dealing with here. But yeah, there's there's changes. There's definite changes that are happening. So now my next question, Joy, is what would you like to see happen in the next 30 years? I would like to see more uh, economic growth in the next 30 years. I would like to see the policies change at the Indian Health Service so that we get better health care. A little-known fact about health care among the Native Americans is that a prisoner in the U.S. system gets better health care than we do. In mm-hmm. fact, almost twice as much is spent on health care for a prisoner than a Native American person here in the United States. And I know that some people get upset and say, oh, they have treaties and they just get free health care and they think that we get free monies and all this stuff, and that's just not true. And some people say, oh, well, they have casinos and they get all these big checks. Only about 5% of the tribes in the United States have casinos that provide any kind of income. And of those 5% that provide any kind of income, only the top 1% give out big checks. My tribe doesn't even have a casino yet. They're talking about having one. Now, as a Baha'i, I don't believe in gambling at all, and I believe that it's a Band-Aid, and I believe that it can be an addiction. So, you know, Obviously, I don't go to casinos, and I don't believe in any of that kind of stuff. To me, it's just a waste of money. But I know that there's some people out there that, that talk about that. I don't get a free check from the government. <laughs> My husband works. He works hard. He's an Aleut, so he's from... His family's originally from the Aleutian chain from Unga Island, which isn't inhabited anymore. So he grew up in uh, Silicon near Tacoma, Washington. But yeah, I would like to see the, the health care change for the better. It would be nice if the age for our men, the median age for our men to not die would be higher than 45. Our men, the median age for death is between 45 and 50. For women, it's between um, 50 and 55. And I would like to see um, a better educational system for our children. I would like to see the Lakota language included more on an everyday basis in our uh, educational system. Those are things that I would like to now, how would you say the Baha'i faith has informed what you've done in service to the Lakota people? Faith gives people a moral compass. If I didn't have the Baha'i faith, I think I would be really lost in what I do. Having the Baha'i faith in my life, like I said, Baha'u'llah, or the founder of the Baha'i faith, says that there's progressive revelation in that all the messengers of the past were like chapters of the same book. For the very first time in the history of humanity, it's okay 
to be Native and to have our ceremonies and for me to, to incorporate those in my daily life. As long as they don't go against any of the teachings of the Baha'i faith, you know, like no alcohol and no drugs and no gambling and you know, those types of things. And our ceremonies don't do that, so our ceremonies are okay. And for me, in, in service, I can go and I can, I can help be part of that movement, which is bringing the ceremonies back. Because so many of our ceremonies were lost are put underground. The White Buffalo Calf woman, like I said, she was the messenger of God for our people thousands of years ago. And we have that pipe that she brought. And the story of the pipe is, is she came, these two warriors went out. One of them had bad thoughts, and one of them had good thoughts. One that had bad thoughts about her because she was really pretty, he tried to touch her, and there was this big, dust, and when the dust cleared, he leaves his bones, and the one that thought good thoughts, she told him, you know, go back to camp and prepare, because I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you some things that you need to learn. We went back to camp, and one of the things she brought was that pipe, which takes our prayers to spirit world, but it's also a reminder of the covenant between us and God. It's kind of like our Ark of the Covenant. If the if the Christians and the Jews had the Ark of the Covenant, then that would be that that pipe is like our Ark of the Covenant, and we still have that. But being a Baha'i says that you know I can still do those things, and her spiritual teachings are the same that the Baha'i faith talks about: and be kind, and generous. In fact, all the religions of the past. All the spiritual teachings are the same. It's just the teachings for the you know, living today that can be different. Because depending on how humanity is, where humanity is in that growth. But yeah, I'm, I'm really involved in, in bringing back the, um, the ceremonies for our people because it gives us a compass and it, and it ties us into our culture. You know, being a Native American is just, is more than just going to powwow. It's it's more than just you know fancy dancing or jingle fest dancing. It's it's more than that. And a lot of people think that you know well all they do is go to powwows or they go to the casino. Well, no, we don't. Like I said, my tribe doesn't even have a casino. But it's more than just going to powwow. There's traditions that are there. There's teachings about how to be that can be. The, learn from those ceremonies that tie us together culturally. So as I'm involved in these things, it helps to renew our culture. And that's really important because diversity, you know, we talk about unity. And in order for for there to be true unity in the human world around the entire globe, there has to be diversity. There has to be. In order, in order for unity to be, to even exist, diversity is a requirement for that. It's an absolute requirement for that. And so as I'm doing these different things and I'm, and I'm going to the ceremonies, uh, like the Becoming of a Woman ceremony, 
uh, going to Sundance, like I'm going tomorrow, or going to the Sweat Lodge or Nipi, are doing those types of things, then I'm helping to keep my culture alive. And I introduce those ceremonies to, to like, my daughter. So I'm passing those on to her and to her friends that come out from other parts of the, the world. I pass those things on to, her, on to them, too. So I'm trying to do my part to provide that diversity, to keep that so that someday there will be true unity in the world and that my culture will stay alive despite everything that's happened to us, despite the forced assimilation, despite the economic hardships, despite the racism that we still go through today. Those are the things that that I try to do. Well, Joy, I want to thank you so much for telling your story. Oh, you're welcome. all my I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joy Braun, a Baha'i of the Lakota people who uses her Baha'i principles to help preserve the Lakota ceremonies. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Hanami Chifu. Hanami Chifu tayo. Hola. Tayo wa chiyanka. Chante wa shikena pe chiyuzu. Onaha. Oyate wa ujila naha. Otakuye wa ujila. Oheche duena. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org. <laughs> 